0: In the book of Breshit, Genesis, the main character who actually lives, experiences uh, the ga'ru, the Avrut and the inui, the suffering and the being uh, enslaved and being uh, being a stranger, is of course Jacob, and Jacob describes his own experience as such in chapter 31 and talking to Lavan after he runs away, Lavan overtakes him, which is last week's total reading. He says to Lavan two things. He said, God saw on ye, God saw my suffering. And he also says, I slave for you for 14 years. It doesn't mean I worked for you. Because well, he's not really a worker. Because a worker can quit. And a worker gets paid. And a worker has some kind of... It's a, it's a human being with dignity. And Lavan invades Jacob's privacy, and Lavan changes his wages ten times, says Yaakov, and he chases after him when he runs away. So therefore, he's not really a worker. And in this week's parasha, beginning of this week's parsha, he sends a message to, uh, to Esau, his brother, who's waiting for him, in, in Laban's Garti. I was a stranger in the house of Laban. So the experience of Jacob in the house of Lavan is the experience of being a stranger, the experience of being a, a slave, and of being... Oppressed. It's interesting that when Jacob describes his own experience, which is Jacob's great quality, the ability to sort of reimagine his past, that the awareness of being a stranger comes last. In the promise, it came first. But in the fulfillment of this promise, it comes last. Because the awareness that you're a stranger has to do with leaving. You're only aware that you're a stranger when you have the critical distance, when you know all the part of it. It's always a part of it. It's very hard to see ourselves as distinct. The moment we, run, the moment we leave it, we look back at the experience. So Jacob says to his, indirectly to his brother Esau, let me tell you where I've been the last 20 years, in Garti, I was a stranger. It was never my place. And that's the, those are the preconditions to the covenant in the book of Genesis. I would add that the idea that suffering is a precondition to the covenant which raises a host of interesting problems, okay? That is the reality of Genesis and that same package of pattern of Geir, evidently reappears in the beginning of the book of Exodus in terms of the people of Israel are described exactly that way of being oppressed, of being enslaved and at least in the case of Moses of being a stranger. So that I think one of the interesting issues in the book of Reshit is that it's not simply that you do suffer but it's the acceptance of the suffering and what Yaakov represents in this book is the acceptance of the suffering when he goes down to Egypt and God encounters Yaakov on the way down to Egypt and God says this is my will Anochi, Anochi, this is me this is what I demand, Yaakov says so Yaakov is actually going down to Egypt aware of what of what what, uh, awaits him because he already suffered once His experience in Lavan's house is the experience of Egypt. And therefore, in the book of Genesis, Jacob is accepting the suffering. He's willing to pay that price. By the way, just to speak about the suffering in Genesis, which is a very important point, covenantal suffering. It's not just that you suffer. It's not just that you have pain. But the point of the book is that, and God spells it out in chapter 15, it's not just that you suffer, it's that... You also don't see the belief in the suffering. In other words, the covenant takes place over four generations so that you, the three generations, suffer. Fourth generation shall return to the land, but those that return to the land are not the ones who suffered, and the ones who suffered are not the ones who returned to the land. So effectively what you're doing is you're setting up the possibility for somebody else to, to, to clinch or complete God's covenant, but all you have in your own life is the hope and the faith and the promise, you don't have the actual fulfillment That's the, those, those are the covenantal terms and actually most normal people wouldn't, want, wouldn't accept such a covenant That's right. everybody feels so sorry for poor Esau who doesn't want it, Esau lives in the moment but the truth is most of us probably would basically agree with Esau he has his 400 men he's got his land, he, has his, he owns the country he's doing very nicely for himself He's the one whose blessing was taken. But Yaakov is the one, the possessor of the blessing, and he has a pretty miserable life from beginning to end. And every relationship he has, it's it's pretty sad. So, talking about responses to suffering, the book of Genesis is about covenantal suffering. Those are the preconditions of the covenant. Why those are the preconditions is a very good question, but those are the preconditions, and the one who actually, in a positive sense, accepts it is Yaakov or as he's known in this week's power he becomes Israel. Jacob, Israel, is the one who actually accepts the suffering. He does two things. He redefines the experience in the house of Lavan, and he also accepts the suffering when he goes down to Egypt. The two, I think, are probably related to each other, because, just to, and I'll get to the main point, I want to get to the main text, but, because the experience of Jacob in the house of Lavan, which is the last week's Torah reading, was a very unpleasant experience basically cheated by his uncle father-in-law he works the first 14 years essentially for nothing I would say less than nothing because he ends up marrying a woman he didn't want to marry and that has all kinds of terrible effects upon his family and uh, so why do we how does the Torah un- frame that suffering that's the question so there are two possibilities this is actually a very important point for the Chush there are two ways to understand it one way, they're both true I'm going to say straight one way is to see it as a punishment. That's the approach I, I think of some of the Midrashim. The one who made this point clear is uh, Kasuto. Kasuto wrote in his famous, one of his books, The all Good Documentary Hypothesis. He points out that whatever happens to Jacob in the House of Lavan Is Payback for what he did to his brother and what he did to his father. Mm-hmm. Deceived the blind old man, he took the brother's blessing. So Casuto sees everything that happens to Jacob, the the younger one being supplanted by the older one, the uh, surrogate father, Ravon's rummaging or searching through his feeling all his possessions, etc., etc., he sees it as a punishment. One can read it that way. On the other hand, you can read it differently, which is, his experience of Ravai is preconditioned to the covenant because he sent there not just to run away from his brother, he sent there to find a wife. (coughs) Esau has married Canaanite women which precludes you from entering the covenant. So Jacob going to the house of Lavan is to find a spouse which would allow him to enter into the covenant. From that perspective, the experience is not suffering, the experience is covenantal. So which of these two dominates? They're both true. It is a punishment and it's a covenantal opportunity. How does one determine which of these two it is? I think the Chumash has a very simple answer to that question. It depends on how you understand it. If you understand it as a miserable experience... We call that punishment. And it's the suffering. Suffering, you, you, you inflict something on somebody else and you quid pro quo. You pay midah and mida. On the other hand, if you understand it differently, if you learn from it, it becomes an educational tool. If you learn from the suffering, then the suffering becomes covenantal. Jacob learns from the suffering. It takes him 20 years. But at the end of 20 years, he looks back and he says to Laban, I was a slave, I was oppressed, and above all, after he leaves, I was a guest. I was a stranger it's not my place so it means he learns from that experience and that makes it covenantal it's not just punishment it's actually covenantal so Jacob has the ability I would say to reimagine his past and the ability to reimagine your past is also the ability to reimagine your, uh, your future that's a very important point it is deeply connected that's Jacob right Jacob becomes Israel he becomes a different person the person who becomes a different person moving forward is the same guy who can look back at his past and say I, un- I understood it one way and now I understand it differently those two, are, those two phenomena are obviously deeply connected to each other it's a very useful thing to think about especially when it comes to something like prayer you know what that, to me that's what prayer is essentially about um, it's about imagining that things don't have to be the way they are it's imagining that things could be different the problem with imagining things could be different is that we're typically so tied to the moment, to the present that it's hard to imagine because we're also part of the present so in a certain sense it means putting yourself into to exile in fact distancing yourself from yourself it's interesting that at the beginning of the covenant of promised Abraham Rashi quotes a medrash God says to Abraham go outside He took him outside God takes Abraham outside So Rashi calls the medrash we took him outside. So God said to Abraham leave your astrological pronouncements. That means leave the way you think the world has to be. Because you saw in the stars that Avram will never have children. says God that's true. Avram will never have, but Avraham will have children. That is to say, that's exactly the point of the medrash. The point of course is that we are so wedded to the way we think We think things have to be. We believe, falsely of course, that things were always a certain way. Of <coughs> <'Cause they weren't> course, the main function of studying history. There's <coughs> one thing you can learn from history. It wasn't always this way. And if it wasn't always this way in the past, so maybe it won't always be this way in the future. So the ability to imagine a different world, which is Jacob's which is Jacob's great gift. Jacob's ability to, to say it doesn't have to be this way. I was Jacob till now, but I can become a different person. That is Is deeply connected to the ability to imagine it, to, to prayer. And one of, as I've spoken many times about it, one of the main characters of the Bible that the rabbinic tradition picks up in terms of prayer is actually Hannah. And the reason Hannah is one of the masses of prayer is because as a, childless wife whose husband is married to another wife and who's given up on her dream of having a baby or whatever, she lives on absolutely on the margins. She's absolutely not vested in the world as it is. And the problem with the problem with being vested is you can't see. But the moment you you divest and you step back from it. And you're not you're not linked to what is, then you can suddenly see. And she sees that it doesn't have to be this way. The temple shouldn't be this way. So it's deeply connected to this ability to imagine a different world, deeply connected to to prayer. In any event, as I said, the book of Genesis is all about this. This This is the covenantal promise. Most people wouldn't want it. Jacob is the hero who accepts it, embraces it with a full understanding. So I was thinking what to talk about. I'm not sure it matters so much what we talk about. The truth is what actually is very important It's not just to try to be helpful in in a situation like this. Actually, the most important thing of trying to be helpful means to figure out what actually we can do in reality. Not what makes us feel good or anything like that, but where, with whatever resources we have, we can do the most good. And who's in the need of most help? That's the first question. You know, the people that lost their homes, but they, it's a terrible thing, but maybe they can build another home. There's some people who lost everything and they have no money, they can't do anything. So those are the people we're looking for to try to help. And, uh, in any event, I was thinking in terms of this, you know, I have a friend, every year, one of my closest friends, when I go to Israel, we taught teach together. And I saw him one, shab- and he, a couple of years ago, I saw him on Shabbat, he was almost in tears. He looked so sad, you know. I said to him, you know, no one knows why you're crying except for me. You know why he was crying? Because that week's partial was Vayichi. The book of Genesis had come to an end. He's so deeply connected to Brashic, you know. But it's over each year. He's, I feel the same way. Yeah, next book good too, but how can you... So I was thinking that this chapter, chapter 15, which is the promise, is connected in the Chumash to chapter 14. Chapter 14 is the story of the five kings and the four. It's a very interesting chapter. The battle of the five kings against the four. It's one of those chapters that when you read it, you say to yourself... It's not on the top ten list, you know what I mean? Great stories, Genesis' greatest hits, Binding of Isaac, Jacob wrestling with the angel. Then we have other stuff that's, you know, doesn't make the list of top ten, like chapter 14, battle of four kings against five. Like, who really cares, you know what I mean? So it turns out that actually that's not the case. That chapter 14 is of immense significance. And we can demonstrate that in two ways. One is that all the language of the covenant of chapter 15 is coming straight out of chapter 14. That's number one. And number two, it's very interesting that in chapter 14, that's what we'll talk about briefly this evening. In chapter 14, chapter 14 is like this. There's a battle of five kings against four. The chapter begins by saying in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and mentions three other kings, there was a war against five kings the five kings include Sodom and Amorah and three other little kings all who reside around the Dead Sea and the Torah then says it's a battle of five kings and they did war for 12, <coughs> for twelve years they served the four kings in the thirteenth year they rebelled and in the fourteenth year there's a great war that's how the chapter begins when you actually read the story you realize it wasn't much of a war at all there was a war but not between the five kings and the four kings The war that is waged in chapter 14 is between the four kings and the great and powerful nations of the land of Canaan. The list of kings in chapter 14 is virtually identical to the list of kings mentioned in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, which talks about the great nations that once existed in the land of Canaan. So we have a a clash of the titans over here in chapter 14, not the five kings who were five nobodies, but the four kings who battled the powerful people of Canaan. The four kings, beginning with Shinar, which is Babel, are four giants. It's the four giants of the world. The Torah is one of the rare examples of biblical humor, which is making fun of the five. It's four against five, the Torah says. You get it says the five are nothing. It's the five are little tiny kinglets around the Dead Sea. The four kings are Elam, Babel. And they're talking about giants. So there is no war between the five and the four. The five attacked the four. It's not clear that the, they've rebelled. In the thirteenth year, it's not clear that the four kings know that they've rebelled. It sounds like they don't realize this. And they're busy walking home and the five kings attack them at which point the four kings continue to walk, take all the people, take all the possessions. The kings fall into pits because they're ready to fall into pits. And that's the end of the war. And among the people that are captured, the town of Sodom is captured including Lot. Lot being Abraham's nephew. And that's the story. Abraham hears in this chapter that his nephew... Has been captured and he sets out to help. So, this is Chad, but Abraham's response actually to the fact that his nephew Lot is in trouble. He doesn't confine himself to helping Lot though, he goes with his army, pursues the four kings, and strikes at night, and he retrieves all of the people and all of the possessions. That's the story. And when he returns from this battle, two people come to greet him. One is the king of Sodom, who climbed out of the pits. He comes to greet him. Shavet to a flat this time he goes to a flat plane, there's not no pits. And the other one who comes to greet him is this mysterious character, Malkit Sedek. Malkit Shalem, one of the mystery men of the Bible. So I want to take a look at that. Malkit Sedek Shalem,. And this is found in chapter 14, in verse number 18. Abraham has returned from battle. And Malkit the king of Shalem, it's not clear really what Shalem means, it's a good word, it means complete a whole. Maybe it's Jerusalem, it's possible. He greets Abraham, the warrior, with bread and wine. He was priest to the high God. Kohen wa'el Elyon. And he gives Abraham two blessings. In chapter 14, verse number 19 and 20, gives Abraham two blessings, which are very interesting. The first blessing of chapter 19 is, Blessed is Abraham to the High God, the creator of heaven and earth. Kone probably means creator. could mean possessor. But probably in Biblical Hebrew it often means creator. The creator of heaven and earth. That's the first blessing. And the second blessing is verse number 20. And blessed is the High God, who has delivered your enemies into your hands? At which point, he gave him a tithe. Who gave whom a tithe? I think Abraham gives him a tithe. Some people think otherwise, but I think it's, the translation is correct. I believe that Abram gives him 10% of what he took. He gives him a maaser in recognition of this Malkit The Malkit story interrupts the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom came to see him first, but the Torah digresses to Malki tzedek, and then he gets back to the king of Sodom, who has an offer for Abraham, which we'll get to in a minute, but first to deal with Malchitzedek. What is What does say? What is he actually saying to Abraham? So it's interesting, he says to Abraham, blessed is Abraham, Baruch Avram." he calls, he refers to God as El Yon. He doesn't use the Hebrew name for God, Hashem, he doesn't say that. He says El Elyon, not Kurdish, not Jew in a sense. He's a religious person. Blessed is Abram to the high God, the creator of heaven and earth, and blessed is Eloyon, Hashem, who delivered your enemy to your hand. So Abraham responds by giving him a tithe. So it's very interesting, a point that i made many times about this verse, is that the language of Maki blessing uses three terms that are very striking. One is Eloyon, he refers to God as the high God. He talks about the God of Shah Sarecha who delivered your enemy into your hands. And he talks about a God who is the creator of heaven and earth, Koneshamayim Vahz. Those three terms actually all appear, essentially appear, in the first blessing of our of our of our, of our prayer, Amida. In the Amidah, it describes God as right? That's taken from Deuteronomy, El the highest God. Kameh Chasadim Tovim, the be as Shemayim Varetz, which we say Friday night, but we have Koneh Hakol, but it's the same thing, Koneh Shemayim Varetz. And the blessing is Blessed are you, O God, Magen Avraham. It means this is. I mean, this is the most important blessing that the Jewish people have. The first blessing of the, of, the, of, of all our prayers is lifted straight out of the story of Malkit Tzedek, which tells you one thing, that the rabbinic tradition understood the story of Malkit Tzedek as being one of supreme significance. So we have to understand why is it so. Our prayers are coming right out of What is What is And also, it's interesting, he, he also blesses him. Baruch. Right? He gives him two blessings. Baruch HaAbramu Elayon. Two blessings. And the second is Uvaruch Eloyion Hashem Migei Terecha Biadecha. What is the difference between the two? And it's the fact it's it's, it's it's presented in terms of a blessing, which is also our, our prayers. Our prayers could have been just a statement, but it's not. The, the, the rabbis who created, the ones who wrote the prayer service, which we call the Shemona Esrei, or the Sabbath service, it's a set of blessings. Seven blessings on the holidays, and 18 or 19 blessings or whatever, but it's all blessings. The brachot, very specifically. So it's not just that we use Mark Yitzhak in the first blessing to describe God and what God does for Abraham, shemigain magain Abraham, but we also it's also in terms of a blessing. So first, so what actually? We, so obviously, it's very important. But what is the what is what is saying over here? So I made a suggestion, which is about why the rabbis might have chosen this particular text for prayer, and this suggestion fits in very well with say the work of the with the Hasidic tradition. Wouldn't fit so well with Rabbi Salvechik's view of prayer. But it fits very well with the Baal Shem Tov. I'm usually with the Baal Shem Tov. <laughs> <laughs> It comes to prayer. Baal Shem makes a simple point about prayer, which is this, which is what Makitetik says. Makitetik has two blessings. Blesses Abraham to the high God, creator of heaven and earth. What he's saying is that the first statement is this Abraham, what, what has Abraham done in chapter 14? Well, what the rabbis chose this as the chapter. What Abraham has done is defeat four kings who in turn have defeated all the various powerful kings in the land of Canaan. The giants, the dreadnoughts, Amalek. Right? Those are the lists. and Amori. The book of Genesis is like this. It starts with the creation of the world and then it talks about a specific place within the world. Sacred space, the Garden of Eden. A place in which we are banished. We don't live in Eden. We live in a difficult world. And we, what we are searching for in this world is a kind of alternate Eden. So you can never go back to Gan Eden. You can't go back there. Everything is provided for you. The world in which we live, things are not provided. It's a world a difficult world. But can you create in this world, which we inhabit, sacred spaces? That's the search. The sacred spaces, in the, the one who actually, the person who represents the ability to discover or maybe even create sacred space in the Torah is Abraham and in two different senses he's commanded twice to get up and go the first time to the place that I will show you which is the land of Canaan and the second time the place that I will show you which is the place of the, of Har Moriah, the place of the Akedah the place of the temple the, the holy space within the holy space in doing so what is Abraham fulfilling? what is he accomplishing? he's doing, he's, he's doing God's work He's doing God's work. You have, you Abraham, symbolically have secured sacred space. So you are blessed to God. You are blessed to God, who is, who is, who, who the creator of heaven and earth. God and heaven and earth, the, that's the first creation. The second creation story is a continuation and says within this heaven and earth, is a place which God walks. God inhabits. We call it the Garden of Eden, and the human responsibility is after the banishment from Eden is to locate and possess sacred space you have done that Abraham because you have captured the land of Canaan you have fulfilled God's charge of Lecholcha that's the first blessing because you're doing God's work and the second blessing is and blessed is the God who gave your enemies into your hands in other words what, I, what the Baal Shem Tov would say I think is this And if if he wouldn't say it, I'll say it. I'll say it for him, whether he said it or not. I think he does say it. You know, in prayer we have three parts to prayer. We have the praise (coughs) of God, we have the request, and we have the thanks. Those are the three pieces to the Shema Nasseri. If you read the works of Rabbi Salavethek, which I grew up with, he focuses extensively upon the request. Bakasha. Bakasha for him is prayer. The other stuff is not that important. He he decries the mystics and others who praise God. He doesn't like that it's all about requesting but the truth is that I think the Baal Shem Tav would say differently what the Baal Shem Tav would say is the following the human responsibility is to do God's work the only problem is if we have no resources how can we do God's work you want to do God's work but you're sick what can you do you want to do God's work but you have no insight you want to do God's work but you have no resources you want to do God's work but you live in a society that actually precludes it so, therefore, everything we're asking for in the Shemona Esrei, whether it's insight, the first blessing, whether it's health, whether it's pirkata shanim, which is about Pandasa, sustenance, or whether it's about a, a, a society which is fair, equitable society, where you can function. All of those things are necessary to make possible the real thing, which is to stand in God's place to do God's work. That's the under that's the Shanto's, that's my understanding, okay? I think it's about Shento was saying. It's about doing God's work, and the truth is, <coughs> it's a very powerful idea, really. You know, we're called to do God's work. And all we're asking God to do is help me a little bit. You know, help me. I to. If I'm sick, what could I do? This is that was Machatzedik said. Blessed is Abraham to the God that created. You have done God's work in this world. You have discovered sacred space. That was God's intention in Eden, and blessed is God who made it possible who delivered your enemies into your hands. I think actually a very important point about response to suffering, something I've been talking about a lot and thinking about a lot lately, it may sound like a trivial point, but I don't think it's a trivial point at all, is how does one see oneself in this world? You know what I mean? And it's, if you see yourself as God's messenger, if you see yourself as, I'm here to, I would say more the messenger, I would say God's servant, God's, Eved Hashem, the Eved does what the Master tells the Eved to do. You see, and the point is, Ani Avdecha, as the Psalmist says, "I am your servant." The story of Svasemis came back from when she was a little kid. I want to be. Today we said my favorite prayer, Ana Hashem. You know, so his father's grandfather, said to him, "Mean Ana Hashem or Sheana?" He said, "No, no, ona Hashem ki I want to be God's servant," and that is actually a different way to see yourself in the world. You don't, you, don't, you don't expect people to say thank you. The Abba doesn't expect thank yous. You're doing God's work. That's why you're here. The only thing is we need, we need to be able to do it. So we're asking for help in, in allowing us to do it. But the, the response is one of the, of the servant. And that's what Malki said. And that's, I think, why the rabbis chose this, actually, for our prayers. It's a different way to see the prayer. It's about seeing oneself as I'm here. Baruch Avram, El Elyon, Konei It may sound like a trivial point. I don't know if it doesn't. doesn't. It's not trivial. It's a completely different way to see the world. Totally different. It's not about me, actually. And the truth is, when you read the Torah, so like the book of Exodus, let's say, we were slaves and we're free. okay So the two ways to read that, they're both true in a sense, but one is that it's a celebration of human freedom. That's one way to read it. But the truth is, when you read the book of Exodus, it doesn't sound that way primarily. God didn't take us out of Egypt. Because God wants us to be free and exit. That's all true. God took us out of Egypt to demonstrate to Pharaoh and to us that God is God. That's when God explains the reasons. I'm bringing the place that you know that I'm God. You know I'm in the world. You know I'm the greatest God, etc. And I'm taking people out who are going to serve me. The book does end with the, with the building of the Mishkan. And that's what God says, Someday Moses, you'll bring people to serve me at this mountain. So seeing oneself as a servant... It's very different. And then the suffering of the other I forget the one who used to have a student here from the Catholic worker, my favorite students. Kathleen Temple. Remember Kathleen Temple? She was sat there. She wasn't Jewish. Of course, when you saw her, if you just step back, no one knew that. But if you just look at her, she obviously wasn't Jewish. I mean, I mean really. So she was with the Catholic worker, and if the Catholic Catholic worker was a very left-wing, I mean, organization. Doris Day.: What? Thursday Day. Dorothy. Dor- 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 Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day. Dorothy. Day, Dor- Dor- yeah. Dorothy Day was the founder, and she, and uh, so I was. In, she so then she got sick and she died. So she, they called me up to visit her. You know, um, she was very respectful in the class. She, I mean, everything she said it was exactly on point. You know what I mean? She used to send me her. She used to write. She was one of the two teachers of the Catholic work. Catholic worker. That eh, she, she wasn't a Catholic. But there's a group that they, they give away all their money. They have no money. I mean, no money. It's zero. Foul poverty. And they essentially deal with people who have nothing. Illegal immigrants, all kinds of people, and they invite them in. And so often she would send me, when she, she was dying, and she sent me an article called Tips. She was in Bellevue. Tips for Waiters. Talked about waiting in the hospital. And she sends a note with it. Much of what I said is based on your class. She did it many times, but I didn't think it would help me to, to quote you here. So, you know, I was reading for the Catholic work. And uh, I remember when I was in one of the Stiebels for whatever reason one time, that Professor Wishagrand came over to me. And he said to me, what are we doing for Kathleen? He said to me, he was in the Stiebel. I said, "We well, should we do something very special person? So, Dorothy Day was the, re- was the founder of the Catholic work. So the, Poor beggars on the street. She called them mitzvah opportunities. <laughs> mitzvah opportunities. I was, so it's a, I'm saying it's another way to see the world, and uh, that's the point about response to suffering. Is this is an opportunity? Actually, we don't want it to happen, but it's actually an opportunity to do a mitzvah. Because why are we here, if not to do a mitzvah So that's the first point over here, and this is what we're asking God for in our prayers. I want to do Your work, but it ta- help me out a little bit, you know. Me, give me health, give me insight to, to make good choices and all that. That's one point that emerges from the story over here. The second point that emerges from the story over here, I think is very important in terms of responding to suffering, is the end of the story. The story is very striking. In this story, of course, Abraham went to battle to, to, save, his, to save his nephew. He was actually, he's not, he's, he's, it's not his fight. In other words, this is a fight between five kings and four kings. There's nothing to do with Abram. He's not, simply not involved at all. He's the Ivory. He's the one from the other side. But he heard his nephew had been captured. So he gathers his, his, his people together. He gathers them. The Torah says there are 318 people he gathers. Chani Chav Yudhidei His Chani Chim. Who knows? Chani Chim is... nowadays they should say his... Uh, his, uh, his the bunkers, the, the, the camp, his campers, you'd say. Right? The campers. In other words, the people in his in his house. He has all kinds of people that he, attached to him. Maybe he's teaching them. Maybe he's calling out to God and bringing people in. Maybe he's caring for them. His retainers, they say, here, and those born into his house. And he chases after these kings, trying to retrieve his... And he goes to war, and he retrieves not just Lot, but he retrieves all the people in the uh, of Sodom and all their possessions at which point the king of Sodom climbs out of his pit and in verse number 21 he speaks to Avram it's very short he says to Abraham let's, let's make a deal give me, the, give me the people and you can keep the property one could say that by right he's entitled to nothing I mean because he, he lost everything and Abraham, but okay let's make a deal and Avram's answer is very striking over here Abram says to the king of Sodom, Eloyon. I raise my hand means I swear. I swear, take an oath unto God, eloyon. Here he says Hashem Eloyon. He says, Hashem Eloyon. Because for Abraham, the God of Abraham means Hashem, the eternal one Hashem. For Malki Tzedek, whom he gives the tithes to, it's interesting, he didn't say Hashem. Because he doesn't his God is not Hashem, presumably. He's a different God. That didn't stop Abraham from giving him a tie, though, because he's, he's a different faith, okay, but he's a man of, a man of faith. Values are good, and he uh, gives the blessing. So Abraham says to the king of Sodom, I swear that I will take nothing of yours. In mi chut now, from a string into a shoelash, I'm not taking any of yours, and you should never say, I made Abraham wealthy, and he has sharti at Abram. So the Chumash plays with, and he has sharti, which means Ashir is a wealthy person. You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't say, I made him wealthy, he has sharti, in contrast, of course, to what he does with the king of Sido, or, or with Maki Tzedek, by ma ma'aser mikol. It's the same word, ayin shin resh, once pronounced with a, as a sin, once, once pronounced with a shin. With one of them he gives it ma'aser, with the other one, he says, I'm not taking anything from you, that you shouldn't think has sharti that's as far as I'm concerned however he says but the boys who went with me ate, the young men who ate and the people that went with me on there Eshul and Mamre those are three Canaanites that went with Abraham they're entitled to their portion I, I forgot my portion but they're entitled to their portion and here I think it's actually a very important point about responding to, to, to difficult situations or to groups of people that are suffering what, what, it, what the story is about among other things is a contrast in this chapter between Avram on one hand and the five kings and the four kings I mean the Torah it's one of those stories of biblical humor but the point of the Torah says that it came to pass in the days of Amra fell, there was a battle with five kings against four listen to all the names and then a few verses later it says again and they went to war with all the names again then it says five kings against four I remember, as I used to, when I taught this the first time, I asked all the students, who has the advantage in the battle? Is it the five kings or the four? And almost everybody said the same thing. It's got to be the five. I said, why? Because there are more of them. Right? Five is more than four. Now, of course, that's an absurd answer, because the four kings are the four, it's like saying there are four nations. There's Russia, China, I don't know, United States, and they went to war against five little hamlets in some little, you know what I mean? Four against five. But the point is that uh, that's a mistake the Torah wants you to make. The Torah is setting it up for you. Because the point of it is very simple. When it comes to these kings, that's all they care about. In other words, as far as the kings are concerned, there are exactly five against four. There's only one king in this chapter who's actually virtuous. The five are no damn good and the four are no good. But there's one king who is good. Malkit Tzedek Melech Shalem. He's the good king. So what does Abraham do, by the way? How does he recognize that? gives him a tithe yeah. tithe is one out of ten right he gives him because the one virtuous most kings are no good but he gives them. there was one king who was also a priest who recognizes he stands in for God and he gives Abraham the same blessing you should do God's work just like me Bakhitech says I'm a king but I realize I'm representing God's interest in this world I'm God's attorney you know what I mean I represent his interests, his heart whatever God's interests. so the point is and I bless you that you should continue to do God's work so Abraham, you see, what's interesting is when it comes to Avram, the Torah goes out of its way, actually, to emphasize he doesn't fight alone. He, he gathers up all the retainers in his house, 318 of them, it says. Yui To, right? And he runs and chases. And at the end of the story, when the king of Sodom says, listen, let's make a deal, me and you. So Avram says, I'm, I'm not making deals with you. because I can't talk to you. But I'll tell you what I am concerned about. I take nothing from you. But, what about my people? What about the, those that went with me, right? Whatever expenditures they may have had. And not only that, their Eshkel, and Mamre, my three confederates, my three Canaanite friends, nice. Canaanites, their Eshkel, and Mamre, they deserve to take their portion. And I think the important point is sometimes you're faced with a situation, happens a lot with something like this, a tragedy like this, which impacts on so many people, happens all the time. And it's very important to remember that there's no such thing as 100,000 people. There's 100,000 individual people. It's so easy to, you know what I mean? We always forget that you're talking about people. And each person, there's no such thing as a sum total of human suffering. It 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 doesn't compute. There's my suffering, there's your suffering. And I think it's very important, and that's the point of this response over here that Avram and you see this with Avram is saying you know something we should never forget and I'm not going to forget that, I, that my people I have count each one out 318 and it's very important to take to remember each individual person even as we deal on um, large scale and the truth of the matter is that this kind of thinking is what actually propels him to fight in the first place he doesn't fight to save Saddam he doesn't even actually care about Saddam there's no Saddam we know they're very bad. He prays for Saddam afterwards. He prays for the town of Saddam. But, what drew him into the struggle, actually, into the, into the war, and then he actually gives them back all their possessions, what draw, draws him into the entire event is by he heard that his brother, which is really his nephew, had been taken captive, and he feels a responsibility. But in aiding one person, he has, he's given the opportunity to aid everybody but he doesn't actually forget so I think the, what, what emerges from this chapter actually it's very striking is that uh, you have the contrast between the kings of the world who care only about themselves and this fellow who actually gets involved in something that he probably didn't care too much about to begin with but having been drawn into it he doesn't forget about the individual people it's interesting by the way just cool with the following thought about this story which is this Later on in the Chumash, Abraham prays for Saddam. God says to Abraham, you know, uh, I can't conceal from you what I plan to do. That's chapter 18. The cries of Saddam ascend to heaven, right? How can I conceal it from you? And he gives a reason. God gives a reason. Because I know, says God, that you command your household, right, and your children in your way to do tzedakah and mishpat. To do virtuous, virtuous, righteous behavior. So therefore, I can't conceal from you what I plan to do. And then God continues: the cries of Sodom are very grievous. I'm going to go down, and if it's what I'm hearing is accurate, I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham prays: he says, What do you mean? Can, how can you do this? What kind of God are you anyway? Shouldn't the just judge of the world do 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 justice? So the two questions actually: one is. Why can't God conceal it from... Anybody can't conceal it from you? Why not conceal it? Does God require everybody all of God's plans? God conceals many things from us. Most things, I would say. Existence is a great mystery. God has concealed it from us. Why can't God conceal it from... What does it mean I can't conceal it? I would add to this, by the way, that God actually invites us to pray. I know you're concerned with tzedakah and mishpat, which means Pray. That's Abraham's prayer. Because God invited it. See, the binding of Isaac, God didn't invite prayer. The, the question people have, which is a non-question, why didn't Abraham pray at the Akedah? It's very simple. Because God is telling him straight out, don't pray. That's how it starts. God testing you, can hear the voice. It, sometimes you know, when someone talks to you, that that you can actually say something. Sometimes you know, that the person who's making the statement, there's, there's no conversation possible. The arcade that God is testing Abraham means, I don't want you to stop. Don't, don't, don't even bother. It's not going to... It doesn't. But here God invites the prayer. I can't conceal it. Why can't God conceal it? and Mishpat. And I'll tell you what, what, I think the simple reading of the text is, is like this. We think of tzedakah and Mishpat as justice. But the truth of the matter is, and I came across an article recently by Weinfeld, it was a, a Bible scholar in Israel. And he makes the observation, I make the same observation without all the research, that tzedakah and mishpat does not mean as we think impartial justice. That when the Torah speaks about mishpat, it has in mind not impartial justice, but justice for everybody, and especially those people who have, who have less access to power, those people who are down and out. That's what the Torah calls tzedakah and mishpat. So God is saying this to Abraham. Abraham, listen. I know that you went and saved the town of Saddam. You went and saved the town of Sodom. You took your troops, you went after the powerful kings, and you saved everybody. God calls that tzedakah or mishpat. That's what tzedakah or mishpat. I know that you extended yourself to help those that are less fortunate. And therefore, what am I going to do? Turn around and kill those very people that you saved? I can't do that. That's the point. God has an obligation because you, you put yourself out to save them. Now interesting, what I noticed is this. Is the story of, the four, is the story of Abraham saving Sodom, Tzedakah, or Mishpat? i tell you what's very interesting. If you look at chapter 14 of Genesis, you see something interesting about chapter 14. It describes the battle of the five kings against the four and describes Abraham's battle against the four kings to retrieve the people of Sodom and his nephew Lot so in chapter 14 there are four terms that are very striking first when it comes to the battle of the five kings against the four who particularly where the four kings defeat everybody and in verse number 7 they go to a place called Ein Mishpat in Ein Mishpat whom do they defeat in Ein Mishpat? Amalek Amalek is mentioned here in chapter 14 Amalek not born to chapter 36 understand Amalek is Esau's grandson so it's anachronistic in a certain sense it doesn't matter that's Ein Mishpat, okay? Then Abraham pursues the four kings. Where does he travel to? In verse number 14, a place called Don, right? Then in verse 15, he divides his troops up by Yudhifemad Chauvah. He goes to Chauvah. Who comes to greet him? Malkit Tzedek. The four terms in the chapter this Mishpat, there's, there's Chauvah, there's Din, and there's Tzedek. That can't be a coincidence. These are the four terms of judging, right? Din is a ju- judgment. Chovetz to be found guilty in judgment. Chayev and Potter, right? The word Chayev appeals in the book of Daniel as well. In Sedek Mishpat. Or Malkit Tzedek. Malkit Tzedek is the next chapter, the covenantal chapter, is all the terms, by the way. Not all of them, but most of them. So what was it? Abraham's retrieving of Sodom? Okay, they're no good. That's, we discover that later. But you don't ask, sometimes you don't ask questions. someone's in trouble, you don't start giving him a fahair, as we say, you know, ask him a million questions. You, you jump in to help. Whatever they are, you don't you talk, ask them. no, an opportunity arises, an obligation, you do it. This is tzedakah or mishpah, that's what the Chumash says. So God in chapter 18 says, Abraham, how could I possibly conceal what I plan to do? I know you command your people after you to do tzedakah or mishpah. Remember that in chapter 14, because he hasn't had children at that point, but he has Yuhidei Beitou, those born into his house. He has the Chani Chim. He has his campers, his retainers, his protégés, his students. Right? So I know you not just do justice yourself, but you involve everybody in justice. Tadako Mishpat. And you save the whole town. I can't possibly destroy them without talking to you first. So, that, so, so Abraham says, since you invite me to pray, let me... So let's talk. So they start negotiating and whatever. So those are some preliminary thoughts about the but I think maybe we knew all this without the Shia, but it's always good to find it in the text. And I think it's I think it's those are very important points. And that I would say that chapter fourteen should be on the top ten. Not to between the other chapters, but the, the rabbis understood it.